Hello and welcome to Property Unpacked, the podcast that unpacks the hot topics of property and explores how they affect you. I'm your host, Alice Stoltz. In our first episode for 2021, we'll explore whether or not we are now in a hot property market. You may well know the answer, but we do also talk about how to navigate your way through it. We also speak with Dan Botkovich from Domain for what to do to win at auction. Well, we have all seen the headlines about the current state of the property market. It is mind-boggling. Some people are even saying bonkers. We're hearing about auctions that are going hundreds of thousands of dollars above their reserve, and there are lines that open for inspections that sometimes snake around the corner of the block of the property. And in some cities, auction clearance rates are the strongest they've been in more than 25 years. Now, in a market like this, it is so easy to feel overwhelmed, confused, even intimidated, and perhaps if you're trying to buy, full of despair. So to help make sense for today, we're going to chat with Veronica Morgan to discuss how to navigate the ins and outs of a hot market. Veronica is, of course, the co-founder of Home Buyer Academy and the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast. You may also know her from Location, 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 Australia. And she's also the author of Auction Ready, How to Buy Property at Auction, Even Though You May Be Scared Beepless. Veronica, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Obviously, I have to watch my potty mouth because you can't say the real word. <laughs> <laughs> Only for the kids listening, which we have a lot of, you know, discerning children who are interested in already saving for property. And they're probably <laughs> quite right to do that, Veronica, because I mean, what is going on? Are we in a hot market? Yeah, well, on that, because it does apparently take 12 years to save for a property, your first property in Sydney and nine in Melbourne. So yes, they better start as children. Um, yes, we're in a hot market. I think that uh, I've said to my clients, you know, strap yourself in. We're in for the ride of your lives. I've been in property now for 21 years, I have to say. And look, I am Sydney-based, but I do have exposure to the rest of the country. And and I have to say that, A, this is the hottest market I've, I've actually experienced. We've experienced... Ever, in all your property career. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a bit more manic than usual. Um, we have dealt with very hot markets before, so we've been through something very similar. But I, I actually think, looking at the numbers, this is hotter. Uh, also, it's unusual in that it is across the country. Mm. This isn't just Sydney and Melbourne. This is the first time when you can see all capital cities on the up and regional as well. It's very, very unusual. So, Veronica, how do we define a hot market? It's easy to get very excited about it and throw that word around like it is a hot potato, but (laughs) there is a definition behind it. Can you talk about what that definition is? Well, I look at it, there's sort of two main methods of sale in this country. There's auction and then there's private treaty. So if you're in an auction market, and obviously Sydney and Melbourne heavily auction-oriented markets, then we define a hot market as when the clearance rate is over 70%. Now, as we've been experiencing in Sydney, we've been over 80% pretty much all year. Uh, Melbourne's, you know, hot on the tails of that, and we're seeing over 80% in other cities as well, madly enough. So that's hot, right? The other definition or the other way to define a hot market is in private treaty sales, and that's where you've got properties advertised at a price or with a range and for negotiation, and that's when it's a days-on-market measure. Now, there's a lot of argument around what the measure is for days-on-market, but I would just say if you look at days-on-market and see they're falling, then you know you're in a hot market. Uh, Certainly, if anything's selling on average in less than a month, on the average, I'd say that's pretty hot. So what does this mean for the year ahead? Like, 
does it get to the point where it just gets sort of meteorically just keeps going up and up and up each week and then we're like, <laughs> oh, my gosh, and something's going to drop profoundly? Or what does this mean for the year ahead? Well, I guess the market goes up and it goes down, you know. So let's just talk for Sydney, about Sydney for a minute. You know, there are cycles, right? And and some people will say, oh, the cycle's 12 years. Other people say it's seven years. It's crap. There are cycles and they vary in length. And so we had a boom back in 2012 to 2017 in, in Sydney and it was pretty well matched in Melbourne. And sort of at the absolute height of that boom, which is probably the mad frenzy in 2016, we were tracking properties that had sold and then unsold, and some of them had gone up 24% in 12 months. So it ended back then in 2017. You know, it was spurred on by a couple of interest rate drops. Well, we're not going to get that anymore, are we? But we've got the problem at the moment, and, and I say a problem because I'm not sure that low interest rates are great for house buyers, let's face it. You know, great once you own a property, but not great when you're trying to buy a property. The Reserve Bank has said the interest rates are going to stay low now for another three years. So when you got that, there's a level of confidence that, oh, well, I can borrow to my max because, you know, as long as I squirrel away for three years' time, I don't have to worry about interest rate rises. you got a huge amount of confidence out there in the market where people are looking at each other for social proof, you know, the confidence begets confidence, let's face it. You've got all these, this FOMO, this craziness going out there. Now, I just looked at a property that sold last weekend in Sydney. Well, I didn't look at it, actually. I saw it online. Actually, I saw it in Domain. You guys reported on it. And it had gone up, I think it was 38%, I think it was, in four months. Okay, so when you see these sort of crazy behaviour, it will stop. But what's going to trigger it stopping, I guess, is is the question. So will APRA step in and say enough's enough again? Because they did that back in, I think it was 2016, wasn't it? Mm. So they started turning dials to slow down the market, but we don't have investors in the market in great numbers at the moment. This is owner-occupier driven, Mm. and that's unusual as well. And Veronica, is it fair to say that some of this may be pent-up demand from last year and the lockdowns the country sustained, and there's just all this buzz and this sort of flushing out of all that sort of movement that wasn't able to take place uh, in 2020? 100%. You know, once again, you know, I talk about uh, the Sydney market. Every year there's Christmas, you know, and it, over Christmas you've got sort of a six-week period where really no new li- or very little in the form of new listings hits the market because, of course, auction campaigns need a good four weeks to run, three to four weeks to run. So, therefore, there's a period of time where there's there's nothing new of note to hit the market. So, every single year in sort of late January into February we experience something like this. And so where you do have that pent-up demand, and also this is coinciding with exactly the same period of year, um, so you've got a whole year's worth of banked-up um, demand coming out of the boxes. You've also got a level of um, enthusiasm about sea change and tree change, which I'm not sure is that sustainable, to be honest. Um, and you've also got, uh, you know, we can't travel. <laughs> so, you know, some of us, there's an enormous amount of capital out there And apart from the fact borrowing money, you know, is cheap, there's a lot of capital out there as well. And and honestly, I guess I'm not an economist, so I can't really sort of comment too much on where that's all coming from, but it's coming into the property market. So across the board, there's a lot of demand coming from areas that we weren't necessarily experiencing before. There's a lot more cash. I have to say even my own clients in my business uh, in Sydney you know, we've got a lot more cash buyers than I've mm. ever had before. So there's money out there. Mm. Um, and, you know, until that all that money finds a home, then 
this ongoing it, demand and, and nothing big happens. Yeah, it's going to keep yeah. circulating. It's interesting also to think that when um, globally things change and borders are opened and, for example, even international students are allowed back in and migration is allowed and encouraged again, what's going to happen when that layer gets added to this mix? Because we have to remember that, that they're all closed at the moment, so we've got nothing <laughs> We've got nothing fueling that, which is a massive part of Australia's property market in, in a normal world. True. Although, interestingly enough, the, it, there is we haven't even spoken yet about the two-speed market. Mm. We do have uh, houses performing very differently to the bulk of apartments. Mm. And in those areas of massive oversupply, where a lot of cookie-cutter apartments, a lot of one- and two-bedroom apartments, they're impacted by, uh, you know, absolutely uh, high vacancy rates, you know, tripling in many areas. Uh, and those are caused by obviously no overseas students coming here. We've got hospitality workers that often very early on in COVID anyway sort of moved out of these places. They were, they were typically renters. Um there's the Airbnb stock, you know, with travel that wasn't allowed and a lot of the Airbnb stock came onto the rental market. So you've got all these, these factors combining to bring on a lot of stock onto the rental market. So when they're not renting and then the rents are going down, then you've got some people that are stressed and putting their properties on the market and then you've got people saying, oh, I don't want to live in a one-bedroom now because what if I get locked in again? Mm. I'm never going <laughs> to. I'm going mad. I'll never do that again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I need more space. So you've got all these sort of factors that are combining in that segment of the market where there's, and and I'm not going to use the word opportunity because I don't think they're good assets to buy in the first place. And I guess this whole uh, COVID scenario is really showing massive weaknesses in that type of stock. But there is a lot of that type of stock out there. And I would imagine that, you know, when the borders are reopened, that will be heavily marketed to that segment. Mm. But could one argue that for first home buyers, if they don't mind the idea of apartment living, and, and granted it's definitely not for everybody, but if they are flexible about that, it could be, and I'm trying to avoid using opportunity here, Veronica, but it could be uh, a little niche for them in that market because I, if they're willing to be owner-occupiers and if they're willing to live in a smaller apartment than a house. Okay, so... You know that first home buyers is a big passion of mine and, and working on your first home buyer guide, which is a whole course designed to educate first home buyers, right? And so when you're buying your first home, it's the first rung on the property ladder. If your property ladder only has one rung on it, that means you might be stuck in that small apartment forever. And the reason I say that is because the proportion of brand new property that sells at a loss on its resale is very, very high. You know, there's data out and, and it, there's no consistent data on this because it's there's certain studies that have been done over the years. One example was done by Biz Oxford Economics. It looked at Melbourne between, I think, 2011 and 2016. So most of that period of time was in a boom and something like 60% of the properties it sold on sold at a loss. So that gives you an example, just one example, of what can happen if you don't buy the right sort of apartment. So apartments can be a great opportunity for first home buyers. It's just that they've really got to be very, very careful about choosing very well in a, an area that is not oversupplied, in a building that's got some level of scarcity about it. You know, so, so you've got to be very careful not to go to those big buildings and those areas with thousands of apartments where they're all cookie cutters and in, when the market slows down, that stuff it all, it, the price plummets because it's just, it's a race to the bottom. You know, the cheapest one's going to sell. 
So it's a trap. Yeah, and, and, and you and you just can't be seduced by those low prices, can you? It's a bit like heading to D, David Jones on sale day and just thinking, oh, well, I, I don't even need those shoes, but I'll get them because they're <laughs> so cheap. And it's like you have to be really push yourself to think, hang on, is this the right purchase for me? So, Veronica, on that note, how do first home buyers navigate this market then? So let, let's just put the apartments mm. aside that they want to buy the house that's going to help them really have decent success and build a property portfolio over the decades ahead. How do they navigate in a hot market? It's really horrible and I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, you just have to focus on established property and you'll be okay. It's hell out there and it's not just hell for first home buyers but it's particularly hellish because I guess if you're upgrading, you're already in the market, you don't feel like you're going to miss out, you don't feel like it's all going to leave you behind, whereas a first home buyer does. I think I'm. this isn't for me. I think first home buyers need to, if they're ready, they need to get in now before the investors rejoin the market because still investor numbers participating in this market are low. Okay, and you've got to think that the type of property a first-time buyer will be going for is not going to be competed for um, by uh, upgraders, for instance. So at the moment, there is a bit of an opportunity uh, for first-home buyers, but I don't necessarily think that's going to be that's going to last. It's it's still going to be hard. The thing that they have to always focus on, and this is something we do teach in the course, is what makes a good property. Now. The temptation when you're buying anything really, I guess, when it gets difficult is to go for the easy thing to purchase. Mm. I know I'll go and buy something brand new because it's easy. I'll go and buy something in a a one-year-old development, for instance, where some poor couple has bought it before me. They got all the grants and everything and now they're getting divorced. They're forced to sell but no one wants to buy it because all the first-time buyers are going for the brand new stuff where they get the grants. I'll go and buy that. So, it's tempting to go for the easy stuff. The problem is, and this is this is the thing about property, if it's easy to buy, it's going to be hard to sell. Mm. And the reverse is true. So the golden nugget in property is to look for property that's going to go up in value. Otherwise, you're never going to be able to upgrade. You know, you're going to get left behind the rest of the market if your property does nothing and everything else is going up, right? And this is what happens in this market, people do lose money even in a hot market, right? I, I know people that have, I, I knew someone who just sold an apartment a couple of weeks ago, was bought at the peak in 2017, sure, but they lost a little bit of money. You know, that's just one example. Veronica, when you say easy, is that about easy about sort of in a price category or do you mean also easy in the type of property that doesn't need work, for example, or you can almost close your eyes and it's a no-brainer? What do you mean by the word easy? I mean, easy and that it's not competitive. Yeah, okay. Easy and that you're not fighting against other buyers to buy that property. Easy in that, you know, you negotiate, you can take your time even. But it's easy because no one else is nipping at your heels, pushing the price up or fighting you for it. So is it fair to say if you're at an open for inspection and no one else is there, something smells off? Yeah, absolutely. Mm Now, having said that, and this is where really doing all your research and understanding a market is really important, there might be a property that, you know, I went through one the other day, for instance, it was a house in a booming market in a booming suburb, but this house, these owners have done the sort of, I call it the Kia slash Kmart renovation, Mm. right? It's got this lovely job lot on this lovely grey paint and, you know, nice graphics on the walls and a Kia kitchen, a Kia bathroom, all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, a nice new deck out the back, no warning over it. It's all, it's all, you know, tweaked up, looks very, very nice. But the floor plan is crap. Mm. 
And so the kitchen's in the wrong spot, the living room's in the wrong spot, bedrooms are on the wrong spot. Like the whole house is all in the wrong order. They would have done better not to spend a cent on that. They would have done better to sell it as an unrenovated property, but they're getting all the wrong buyers through because it presents so beautifully. The buyers are coming through going, oh, yeah, but I don't want my living room there. I don't want my bathroom there. I you know, want it the other way around. So that's an example of a property that if you can get it at a discount, i.e., not paying for the renovation, I use rabbities around that word renovation, mm. not paying for the tartar, then that could be an opportunity as long as you get the right price. Veronica, okay, so we've talked about what first-time buyers can do. What about people who already have a property and they're upgrading or downgrading or downsizing, sorry, in that in that same market, but it is still a hot market? What do they have to be aware of? In property, there are so many sort of lines and myths you hear. And one of the ones that isn't true is, but as long as you're buying and selling in the same market, it's okay. So that's actually not true because when you are upgrading, the differential between what you're selling and what you're buying, it gets bigger in a hot market. It grows. So, And then when you're downsizing, essentially it's meant to shrink except for the fact that the problem is a lot of downsizers have a home that may not have been renovated for 30 years or so and there's an issue there, right? So your timing and how you go about things is absolutely critical that you don't get left behind. In the last boom, the amount of people I would have come into my office and sit there crestfallen because they'd sold thinking, I, I'm talking even in 2013, 2014, and the, the boom had another couple of years to run and they were saying well we sold because we thought things couldn't get any better and then we got left behind in one case I had a couple that couldn't buy back their own house their house they sold I mean that's absolutely tragic so what upgraders have to really really think about is their runway and the timing of how they do this. And then you can also get caught out because I can tell you that in a hot market, as it was at the very beginning of last year, 2020, clearance rates were pretty high, not as high as this, but they were high. You know, before COVID slammed everything shut, we were set for a pretty big year last year and people got caught out because they bought and then they were planned to sell and then bang, lockdown, and there was a bit of frenzied panicked selling for about a six-week period. So there's risks in buying first, there's risks in selling first, but assuming this market continues at this rate, the risk of selling first is greater than the risk of buying first because if you aren't quick, if you aren't spot on and clear on exactly what it is that you want to be buying, where you're going to be buying, and how much money you need and have, then you are going to get left behind because the time it takes you to catch up in your head and times it takes you to educate yourself and get ready, you will have lost momentum and lost dollars, significant dollars. And you just can't go at it alone. You you need to rely on agents. You need to be looking at your own data. You need to be listening to things and people and asking everybody about it, I believe, to just get as much sort of intel as you can. And I'm not saying everybody has to be listened to religiously, but I just no. think you <laughs> need to really synthesize that information and think, how am I going to apply this to my case? And I suppose if you are really feeling lost about it, so seek professional advice on it. Well, obviously, I mean, you know, we say use a buyer's agent, but, you know, most buyer's agents I know at the moment, they've got full books. Um, yes. Yeah. All of a sudden it's like everyone's, oh, that's going to be my, you know, my competitive edge. And it is hard because there's a lot of vested interests out there in in the property market and there's also a lot of opinion. Everyone's got one. And 
most of them are wrong, to be quite frank. And also it's an unregulated uh, industry when it comes to advice. Mm. So it, it's unfortunately, yes, there's a lot of information out there, but a lot of it is very poor information and misguided information, and a lot of false beliefs around property. So it, it, it is difficult to navigate that. And I always say, you know, particularly if you're upgrading or downsizing for that matter, if you have a property and you're in that property now and you have it just, you've got to sell it and you're going to buy Get yourself so crystal clear on what your next steps are going to be before you actually sell that property um, and spend that time researching it and and determining what you want to do. It, it's worthwhile spending the time before you make these, these sort of life-changing decisions that it is getting panicky. And I know, look, I've spoken to someone who's got property in the regional area, for instance, and they're thinking, oh, my God, I've got to get on this, I've got to sell it now, this wave will crash at some point and to be honest I think it probably will you know I think the work from home movement will probably lose its shine once everyone's vaccinated and also once the idea of commuting two days a week two hours each way sort of (laughs) gets a bit of a drain Um, and living regionally you know is not going to suit everybody you know a lot of people will go there and go oh god I want to go back so there's going to be a bit of that happening so at some point that will happen but to still to jump and panic and, you know, without really considering and doing the research, as you say, is folly. Mm. Veronica, thank you so much for talking with us. I feel slightly calmer about the year ahead having spoken with you. So thank you so much. And I'd love to chat with you again soon as we keep watching how this market does indeed unfold. Can I just add one thing? Please. So in a hot market, everybody competes for everything. So a house on a main road, for instance, or a dark house or except for those weird ones that have been over-renovated with the poor floor plan, pretty much every property is competitive Mm. and buyers lose their ability to be discerning and really being picky. In a cold market, when it's slow, buyers are picky as hell. Mm. So there's a real difference to what gets competitive in a hot market versus what gets competitive in a cold market. So in a hot market, always have this thought in your head, would this go off like a frog in a sock or like a rocket if it was a buyer's market? And if it's a buyer's market and this thing will still be competitive, then go to town. Mm. In a hot market, everything's hard to buy, right? And then when you get into a cold market, you don't want to be buying something that's going to be hard to sell. So really keep laser focus on that. You're going to have to compete to buy something in a hot market. Just make sure you make it an A-grade property. Such sage advice, Veronica. Thank you so much for talking with us today and we'll chat with you soon. My pleasure. Well, if you're like most people, bidding at auction can be incredibly daunting, even for the most seasoned and savvy property buyers. Here is Domain's advice editor, Daniel Butkovich, to talk about tips for how to win at auction. Bidding at auction can be both exciting and terrifying at the same time, but if you're going prepared, you'll improve your chances of success. The first and most important tip is to do your research in a comparable sales in the area so you have a really good idea of the value of the home because there's no point bidding on a property that's going to sell way above your pre-approved purchase price. Decide on your max bid, write it down and stick to it. On the day of the auction, get there early and scope out the competition. If there are a lot of people registered, a strong opening bid can blow half of them out of the water. Don't be afraid to start big, but don't start with your max bid because it could be more than the property's worth. Now auctions thrive on momentum, so as a bidder, you want to try and control the bidding as much as possible. For example, if you're the opening bidder and you're thinking about starting at 800,000, you could start at 795 instead. 
That way it's more likely to go up in those smaller $5,000 increments, not $10,000. You could also try and slow the pace of bidding so things don't get carried away by bidding with odd increments, say six or 7000 This just might make other bidders stop for a second because they're probably expecting the next bid will be a round number. Alternatively, if it's going up by $10,000 and you're not yet close to your max bid, you could bid $15,000 more. So what you've done there is project confidence by bidding big, but you've also potentially slowed it down at the same time. Bidding is now more likely to go up in those smaller $5,000 increments instead. If you're getting pretty close to your limit, say there's only one other bidder left, and it's going up in small increments, that's where you can go straight to your max bid. A big bid at this stage shows confidence, and it actually gives you a chance to raise the paddle on your max bid, rather than letting the other bidder do it and knock you out. The other important thing is body language. If you're there with your partner, you're probably going to be giving away massive tells. When couples start making eye contact, if their eyes start bulging at the size of the bids, then other bidders are going to know straight away that they're nearing their limit. If you're on the phone to your partner, then everyone's going to know that you're asking to spend more money, and all they might need to do is bid another $1,000 to win. So control your body language, know your limit, and keep your cool. The other side of it is, you as a bidder should be reading that body language and watching for people making those tells. If you're controlling the bidding and your competition is umming and ahhing over those little $1,000 bids, then you want to hit them with a really strong counter bid straight away. If they take another 30 seconds to bid another $1,000, you've got to hit them again immediately. Send the message that this is not their home, it's yours. Now if you've reached your limit and you literally don't have any money left and you're not pre-approved to bid that high, don't do it. Don't fall into the auctioneer's traps. If they're saying it's the third and final call and they're threatening to bring down that hammer, what they're trying to do is create that fear of missing out. But if you commit to buying a home that you can't afford, that could mean trying to borrow another twenty dollars or $30,000 from mum and dad, or selling your car, or literally having no money in your bank account, which is a really risky situation to be in if you've just committed to a massive purchase. Sometimes you really do need to be that bidder who just gets blown out of the water to actually get a feel for how the auction process works and really get an understanding of value in the current market. Just remember, if you do miss out, this is not the last property for sale and there will be another one. You've been listening to Property Unpacked, a podcast by Domain. If you like what you've heard, hit subscribe and take a look at our previous episodes. Our executive producer is Adrian Lowe with production by Hayley Cools and editing and mixing by Dan McHugh. For more property news, advice and market insights, head to domain.com.au or download the Domain app. Thanks for listening. Chat to you next week.